Well, uh, trials and temptations are as common to us as breathing. And so is the notion that accompanies them, that God is absent, uh, God is distant, God's not with me. Have you ever felt like that in hard times or in testing times? Well, it's not true, of course, uh, because the fact of the matter is God is with us to bless us. And to forget that, whether in trial or temptation, is to forego the strength that this truth brings to each and every one of us. Uh, take Olivia, for example. Olivia has gone through a lot of trials in her life, uh, especially in the past year. They aren't sudden, they aren't massive, but they are many, they are persistent, and they still feel quite overwhelming to her. So she's struggling with anxiety, worrying about work. Her mum and dad are pretty aloof nowadays, and she finds that hard. They don't offer much support. And to make things worse, Olivia's closest friends and the person she's done a one-to-one -one with over the last two years has moved away so she feels isolated, she feels lonely, hence the anxiety and the overwhelmed feeling. What difference would it make to Olivia to call to mind in this persistent hardship of hers that God is actually still with her to bless her. Or what about Greg? Greg is as happy as Larry to come to church and sing about the nearness of God and the songs and talk about it over family devotions with his wife and kids. But when stress levels are particularly high, when family life gets a bit strained, but especially when he's got a bit of time on his own, it's then that he is most tempted to look at stuff he shouldn't look at and ingratiate himself. He gives in because he thinks no one's watching, no one's there. Now, what difference would it make to Greg knowing that God is with him to bless him? Well, I want to show you tonight from Genesis 39 that it makes all the difference in trials and temptation, in trials like Olivia's and in temptations like Greg's and in ours as well. And the main thing to take away as we look at the story of Joseph in chapter 39 is that God is with us to bless us. If there's a sentence I want you to take away tonight, it is, God is with us to, you've got it. Shall I pray? Should we go? No, we're not. We've still got a bit to do. So I've got two points, and let's start with the first one being, when trials come, remember, God is with us to bless us, okay, verses 1 to 6, 6a. Now, trials are tough. There is no doubt about it, and verse 1 reminds us of that. And it's important to keep that in mind, because in, in verses 1 to 6, for Joseph, things are actually beginning to look up a little bit for him. But we must not allow the success of Joseph in Egypt to tone down the hard facts of his predicament. Remember from chapter 37, He's been assaulted and imprisoned and trafficked by his brothers who've gone off to his dad to say, your favorite son is dead, and he is devastated. And Joseph, now sold to uh, a captain in, uh, in the Egyptian army, is essentially, he's essentially gone from favored son to soldier slave. And this is a horrible hardship. Now, here's a question. What goes through a person's mind routinely when trials and hardships come their way? 
What kind of things go through yours? Uh, have you experienced a sudden change of circumstances? Um, maybe like Olivia in, our, in the beginning, it's something persistent over time. There's a knock-on effect of a number of different things. Often it's a question, why is this happening? Uh, God's goodness often gets called into question. And often there is this assumption, isn't there? God just seems to have abandoned me. Nothing's going my way. But it's just absolutely not true. Here's what is true for Joseph and for us. Verse 2, see it with me. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, that's the main point that God is making in and through chapter 39. Indeed, it bookends the whole chapter with a double affirmation, verse 2 and verse 4, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. And then verse 21 and 22, in a, in a, in a harder predicament, uh, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. And this is vital for us to remember as Christians, God is with us all the time. Don't allow, therefore, your trials to rob you of the fact that God is near. I mean, the Bible is saturated with every reassurance that he is, not only in the general fact of his omnipresence, that he's everywhere all the time, and that there's never a time when he is not with you, but the, the personal nature of his presence. When you see in, uh, in, these, in this passage the use of the name Lord, it is actually the Lord's name, Yahweh, if you like, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 21, and 23. And it's like Moses, who is the author of Genesis, is using this personally, personally given name, a name that was given, revealed to Moses later at the time of the Exodus. He is revealing this name as the one who was with Joseph. The same God who is personally present with him is personally present with us. And tons of texts in God's Word demonstrate this. Let me just show you a couple. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. I think my favorite has to be in uh, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Many people know this passage. I mean, if I asked you, what does Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7 say? Folks will say, oh, it, means, it says rejoice always. It says don't be anxious. It says present your request to God. And it says, oh, the transcendent peace will be yours. But so often we forget those amazing four words. We rush by them so often, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Four words packed full of comfort for people like us today. So what should Olivia do when she thinks God's abandoned her to a million little hearts? What should we do when we think trials equals distant God? Well, we should never let our subjective feelings overrule objective biblical truth. If he says it, he means it. If he said it, it's true. It doesn't matter what you think about that, it's still true. It doesn't matter what your feelings tell you, it's still true. So why not memorize verses like these, like 40, Psalm 46 verse 1, Philippians 4 or something from 39 here, and use these verses as takedowns for the feelings that rob us of the functional courage 
and comfort that the recollection of these truths brings to daily life. And because there is a functional advantage to them. You see, instead, we, should, we need to recognize how we ought to live and how the knowledge of God's nearness helps us to live in a way that demonstrates faithfulness to him. I think that's what we see in Joseph in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2 says the Lord was with Joseph. And the way Joseph lives suggests that Joseph himself is aware of this. Uh, you don't see him in his slavery trying to run away. He's not drowning his sorrows. He's getting up and going to work. It's like Joseph has just resolved to be faithful wherever God has placed him. Now, that's the effect, the knowledge of the nearness of God has on us, no matter what hardships we're facing. If God is with us, we can face the day. In fact, we can even seize the day. We can look for God's blessing on us, even in the midst of trouble and hardship, and still, at the same time, look to be a blessing to others. Isn't that what we see in verses 2 to 6 as well? I mean, verses 2 to 6 shows that God is with us to bless us and to make us a blessing to others. I mean, don't miss God's blessing and God's hand in Joseph's rapid rise to prominence in service of Potiphar. In verse 3, he's promoted from slave to Potiphar's PA. In verse 4, he's promoted again to being Potiphar's chief steward, the manager of the house. Verse 6 says Joseph managed everything from paying bills to answering emails. And all Potiphar was worried about was what was for dinner. Now, do you see what's going on here? God is blessing Joseph in the midst of this hardship. Okay? He is doing that by giving him, granting him favor in the sight of his master. So God still works blessing in our hardships. We know that. We know that from James 1. It says our hardships have a purifying impact on us. Romans 8 says he's working for good in us and through us. 2 Corinthians 1 says he uses our hardship to give us what we need to be able to minister effectively to other people. And who can say more of all the ways that our hardships drive us to a deeper dependency upon God or flick that freezing cold icy water on sleepy souls like ours? What a blessing these are just to us. But that passage says more. It says God blesses others through us even as we experience hardship. He said he would do that, didn't he? The Lord said this would be the case. Genesis 12. When God called Abram out of Ur to be his own and to work through him, he said this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you see, this is a promise to bless Abraham and make him a blessing to others. Now, as we look back at Genesis chapter 39, and verses 1 to 6 in particular, what do we see? Potiphar and his household being blessed through Joseph, Abraham's great-great-grandson. It's another one of those hidden in plain sight things. I didn't want to start with the same illustration again tonight, but that's what it's like. On the face of it, Joseph's kind of on the up as far as slavery goes. But take a closer look, and what do we see? God's hand at work in microcosm 
blessing the nations through his people. Now, who would have thought something like that could happen in a time of trial? Do you ever think like that? No, in times of trial and hardship, I guess you're like me, we tend to kind of retreat into ourselves. We become become very introspective. It's quite hard to think about anything else when actually all that we seem to think about is ourselves. But the truth is, hardships and our faithful response to them, actually they provide amazing opportunities to tell people about the Lord. I love verse 3. Verse 3 here tells us what Potiphar put, put his success down to. This is Potiphar. Potiphar, the Egyptian, the polytheist, he's probably bathing this little statue of the god Ra (laughs) at the start of the morning just for blessing in his life. And here he is attributing his blessing to the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes. Now, how does he know about the Lord? Well, there's only one possibility. Joseph told him. Now, how often do we just treat our trials as reason to grump? Turn your trials instead into times that tell of God's amazing grace. He works through them to bless others. So never forget in our trials, God is with us to bless us and make us a blessing to others. Now, what makes the apprehension and the application of that truth so vital is that the trials keep coming. They're pretty relentless. Uh, Even at the end of this episode, Joseph finds himself in a worse situation than he was at the beginning. He ends up in prison. His freedom is restricted even more. And how painful that must have been for him, despite as well the faithfulness that he demonstrates. So verses 1 to 6 help us see that God is always with us to bless us and that God's presence helps people be faithful in their trials, verses 7 to 23 shows the same is true in temptation. So when temptation comes, this is point two, remember this, God is with us to bless us. Now the knowledge of the presence and blessing of God are a wonderful defense for us against temptation. I think this is what this section reveals. You see, Joseph here faces a most challenging test. Potiphar's wife likes Joseph just as much as Potiphar does, but for different reasons. Um, There's a reason why um, we're we're told that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, And verse 7 shows that uh, as as blunt a chat-up line as one gets, come to bed with me. Uh, in Hebrew, it's actually just two words, lie me, is, uh, it's pretty blunt, isn't it? Now, here's the thing, right? Sexual sin has a, has a kind of habit of making us pretty stupid, okay? It makes us quite dumb. And people always think when there's a, a temptation, particularly of a sexual nature, we look for ways either to justify it, oh, Joseph could have thought, maybe this could work to my advantage, or... People think that if there's no one around, maybe I can get away with it. Oh, nobody would find out. Now, how many marriages have ended or struggled because weak-willed men and women love the idea of a few minutes of pleasure more than they love Jesus? Too many. And how many ministries have imploded because of the same? 
let me tell you, it's too many. But not Joseph. Look at verse 8 with me. Here's the advances of Potiphar's wife, lie, me, she says, but he refused. So Joseph stands up under the temptation, and I want to show you that the functional strength to do so comes from the recognition of the presence and blessing of God in his life. Let me show you how I get to that conclusion. Her two-word indecent proposal is met with this 62-word in English anyway, 62-word refusal justified for five good reasons, right? Look with me, verses 8 and 9. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. So reason number one, trust is worth preserving. Joseph's not worried about losing his job here, is he? He's worried about losing his master's trust. It's something he values. Then verse 8 goes on, everything he owns, he, entrust, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. So reason number two, authority is not for abusing. Joseph used his position, you see, not for his own advantage, but for service. To lay aside his own advantage to serve others. The text continues, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because, hint, hint, you are his wife. So reason number three, marriage is sacred. Actually, in this passage, it's remarkable to see that Joseph values her marriage more than she values it. Then the text continues, how then could I do such a wicked thing? Making a very pointed reference to the sin of adultery. Joseph essentially here is seeing that sexual sin is evil. By, by God's grace, Joseph saw the pig behind the lipstick, if you like, and the, the inconsistency of practicing evil by someone who was fundamentally set apart for good. The text continues still, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Reason number five, God is better than sex. God is worth more than those minutes of pleasure. Joseph was so unbelievably grateful to God for God's ongoing presence in his life and his incredible blessing that the thought of sinning against God was a, just a horrible thought to Joseph. He loved the Lord. Now, I think you see that not just in the breakdown of verses 8, to 8 and 9, but actually even in the flow of that refusal. I mean, why after taking so much time to talk about Potiphar this and Potiphar that, does he not then say at the end, how could I then do such a wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? Why does he not say Potiphar there? Why say God? Well, there are two reasons. One, because Joseph sees in Potiphar's trust the blessing of his ever-present God. And he doesn't want to go against it. How can I be so blessed and act with such ingratitude by sinning against him in this willful way? And secondly, because sin, no matter what, Human you sin against is always an offense against God. We see that in Psalm 51 when King David, in confession of his own adultery with Bathsheba, says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, this might sound admittedly absolutely wacky, 
to you. I mean, Joseph refuses risky sex because of what he knows about God's. Now, you might, along with the rest of our culture, most in our culture anyway, think that, well, why would you do that? Isn't sex just one of life's greatest pleasures and sneaky sex the ultimate drug? And to deny yourself an opportunity like Joseph's is crazy, man. It's just not to live. But God through Joseph, I would say, is speaking to you right now and saying, well, there is actually a greater joy on offer. If you think that sex is all there is in life, you are like the kind of person that C.S. Lewis says who finds contentment building mud pies in the slums because they have not discovered what it's like to build sandcastles on the shore. The greater joy is found in God. And if you've not discovered that yet, we'd love to show you. We'd love to help you find this out. Ask the person who brought you. Come and grab a Bible at the end. There's a few down here with a wee note in for a place to start to read. I'd love to give you one of those. You don't need to come and have a chat with me. You can just say, can I get one of those Bibles? And the answer will be yes. Or come and grab a chat at the end if you do want to talk about this kind of thing or even talk to God. Say sorry for your sins and believe in Jesus who came to live and dwell with us, a life of righteousness that would qualify him as our savior so that when he died on that cross and historically he did 2,000 years ago he died to take away our sin to pay the penalty for it so that we who do sin in this way might have forgiveness and so that we who see him as the Lord of blessing and the one in whom there is the greatest joy can have life in his name. It's glorious. Think about it. Talk to someone about it. But what about us, brothers and sisters, here at church, in our church family? We need to think again about Joseph's refusal of temptation. How does this care, O oh, tempted ones, with our own defense strategies in the fight against sin, or particularly in the fight against sexual sin? Uh, most of us rely on filters and friends in the fight against sin. They are, no doubt, precious weapons in the war against the flesh. But battles aren't won by internet software and accountability partners, as helpful as they are. Battles against temptation are won by treasuring Christ above all. Christ who gives us power by his Holy Spirit to well, value trust as we love our neighbor, serve sacrificially, honor marriage, unmask sin, and especially live gratefully before God. Choose to live for him based on the blessings he's poured into our lives by his spirit because of his son, motivated by his great love for us. And that, I think, is the biggie in this passage. And maybe the application of it is we would do well to go and count our blessings. Write them down on a piece of paper at some point this week until it either hurts your hand or blows your mind, whatever comes first, and then just say, thank you. And let that gratitude not only astonish you, 
but functionally serve you in the realization that we can stand up under temptation saying, I don't want to sin against the one who has blessed me so unbelievably graciously. And even if you do sin, you rest on his grace and you go again because that's how wonderful he is. That's what Greg needs in stressful times, in those quiet, selfish moments. That's what we all need when temptation hits. And here's why it's crucial to understand this, and it's because neither temptation nor hardship go away, okay? Things don't always get better. Verses 11 to 20, the temptress keeps coming back until one day she couldn't take his rejection anymore. Joseph, to his credit, stands firm on a regular basis. But she tricks everyone into believing that Joseph was a wicked, abusive man, including her husband, who's angry at Joseph's betrayal. And then verse 20 to 23, we see the trials keep coming as well, because Joseph is imprisoned without trial. What an injustice for him, given the righteousness that we've seen in this passage. But life sucks at times, and there are there. There is no simple explanation on the face of it. Even Joseph himself didn't know what God was up to here. Over time, of course, Joseph would come to know the answer to the question of what is God up to here? Why is this happening to me? Because we who've read through the story already know that God is marvelously maneuvering Joseph into position so that he can then act not only as the savior of Egypt, but the savior of his people. And the promise given to Judah and to all of us. And over time, by God's grace, we might understand something of the purpose of them too, though maybe not. But what we learn is that Joseph maintained his focus throughout. He never gave in to Mrs. P's persistent proposals and in dire circumstances, even with a warden for his master, he still lives knowing that the Lord is there to bless him, with him to bless him, even in a prison to bless others through him. The warden loves him. Like I said at the start, trials and temptations are as common to us as breathing. We will experience hardships all along life's paths to varying degrees, but knowing that God is with us to bless us makes all the difference, friends, in trials and in temptations. Now, we see that really clearly in Genesis 39, but can I just tell you in closing, we see it all the more clearly in the coming of Jesus into this world. His coming proves beyond doubt that God is with us to bless us. When he comes into the world, even as the Lord appears to the other Joseph, Mary's future husband, in a dream, there are two names spoken of, Emmanuel and Jesus. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And Jesus, the Lord saves. Salvation being the greatest blessing that anyone can receive. With us. To bless us. And of course, when he, having died, that we might be forgiven of our sins, been raised to life to prove that that sacrifice was accepted, and just before ascending to heaven, he leaves this world with a precious promise. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. How? 
through the presence of the Holy Spirit to live in us, to bless us. So God truly is with us, to bless us, even today. This is a promise and a truth, not just for Joseph, but for you and for me to be functionally lived out in our lives, in our day-to-day experience of trial and temptation. The nearness of God helps the people of God stay faithful to God in trials and temptation. And we must hold firm to that together. Let's bow our heads.